Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're proving that you can go home again, though you may not want to. Our guest is Erin Adams, an actor, playwright and now first-time novelist, whose debut, Jackal, transports us to the small town Pennsylvania of her childhood. Johnstown, the town in question, is loaded with dark history, it's ringed by forbidding forests and it's segregated by class and race and geography. So it's basically a lot like my hometown, except for the monster that steals children every summer. Erin takes us on a tour of Johnstown, both the real and the sort of fictionalised version. We talk about justification and paranoia, about anger as a superpower, and the notion that horror is a genre for white people. She explores the epochal moments from her town's history and goes deep on her feelings about black horror's handling of trauma. So yeah, all in all, this is a serious conversation about a weighty book. But, but don't forget to smile because there are also monsters. And we love monsters, don't we? Remember, you can support Talking Scared by subscribing and reviewing. And if you want bonus content from writers, from genre experts and, well, me, you can also sign up for Patreon. A few dollars a month keeps the show on air and my dog in dog treats. So just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or follow the link in the show notes. But now follow me on a forest trail in a dark valley in a coal-fired state. And if you hear something calling your name through the trees, do not respond. Let's talk scared. Hi Erin, and a big welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. Well, I normally start by asking a guest where they're speaking from. And in your case, I think that may be especially pertinent considering the book we're going to discuss today. Are you by any chance in Pennsylvania? No, I am not. <laughs> I am I am in um, I'm in New York City. I'm currently working on my off-Broadway uh, debut, so I'm here in rehearsals in the city right now. But I will be back in Johnstown for like a couple weeks in October and then definitely for the holidays and all that. That's cool cuz yeah, homecoming's a big a big old part of the book we're going to discuss. Um I I always love a conversation with an author that's focused on place. And I'm especially looking forward to this one because it, it spoke to me for so many reasons about small towns and homecoming and all that sort of stuff. Before we get into all of that, though, let's introduce the book in question. It's your first novel, I believe, and it's called Jackal. It's one of those books that's built for this kind of in-depth conversation that I hopefully try and pursue with this show. There's a lot of meat on the bone. But let's start with you. Tell us what we need to know about Jackal. Yeah. Um, so Jackal is a like horror mystery thriller that is about Liz, a young black woman. She's returning to her hometown in the Rust Belt after many years away. And she mostly comes back because she needs a bit of grounding in her personal life. And she's also there for her best friend Melissa's wedding. At the wedding ceremony, somewhere between dancing and dessert, uh, Melissa's young daughter Caroline goes missing. 
And as the search begins, uh, Liz realizes that she's seen something like this before when she was in high school. She was at another party in the woods and another young black girl went missing. And she begins to uncover this series of missing and then murdered black children who are all black girls. And so as she's putting pieces together, she realizes she has to figure out what's happening before um, Caroline is gone forever. That's a nice, concise introduction. You, you've done this before, quite clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. If, if it wasn't um, interviews, it was definitely the two years of grad school and, and pitching for my classmates. So. <laughs> <laughs> like you said right at the start, there, it is a kind of hybrid horror mystery thriller. And it, it's got the feel of one of those sort of great 90s serial killer thrillers in, in many ways. And there's yes. a book. Thank you. This is my favorite. Sorry, this is my favorite compliment. Sorry to interrupt you. Please continue. No, that's fine. No, there's a, there was a book that I discussed last year by the writer Ronald Malfi called Come With Me. And it was a book that was on a lot of people's top 10 lists. Uh, and it, it was a book about sort of, a, a, I think it may even have been Pennsylvania. I can't remember now, but it was, it was kind of definitely like Coal Belt anyway. Uh, and it, it's about a guy who got who tries to unearth a series of crimes that may or may not have an, a supernatural inflection. Um, and there, there is some tonal difference between the two books. I would say to people, if they liked Come With Me, which many people did, they'd probably get a kick from Jackal. Yeah. Did, did you go for that aesthetic, that 90s, you know, Chris Carter, Millennium type thing? Um, I mean, kind of. I would argue that probably wasn't intentional, just as you can hear my excitement and my taste for that <laughs> kind of feel. Um, but I definitely wanted the feel of the Rust Belt, um, mm -hmm. just because I grew up there. Uh, and because it's just, it's a place that is so full of history and full of these really interesting, um, especially like social relationships, class relationships, racial relationships that I feel like we don't see all that much we kind of got it like a little bit with the fallout from the 2016 election i promise not to be too political um but uh, so we got like a little taste of that but i feel like it was very broad strokes uh and when i would try to talk to people i knew like you know in new york and the city and more metropolitan areas they kind of really reduced the area to something really simple and i'm like no 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 there's something very very complicated happening in this part of the country and i think it's really interesting very much so. Just to say, be as political as you like. I mean, this is this is a show in which I rant pretty much weekly about the state of the world. So, so have okay, at it. So, one of my favourite questions to to ask writers on this show, and I probably ask it too often, but I don't care. It's a good question. I often ask if the book was written from a place of anger. Now, usually. I'd wait till a bit later on when the guest is a bit more comfortable, perhaps. But anger, <laughs> anger feels so central to Jackal. I can't really remember the last time I read a book that felt so suffused with fury. Am, am I right to feel that? And, and if so, yeah. does, does that come from you or does it just <laughs> come from Liz, your protagonist? Oh, man. Anger. Um, so... <laughs> I, I will say that, no, you're right on, right on the nose with that one. And it kind of, anger is a major theme in this book that, I mean, it's, it's going to sound a little ridiculous now, but kind of snuck up on me in the revision process. 
like, yes, that you're supposed to feel this anger. And there's, it, it's a theme that is in all the characters because I find at least for me, especially as a, a black woman in America, uh, my anger is in incredibly confusing. <laughs> it's weaponized against me, but it's also somehow my superpower. Um, it's a very complicated, sticky situation. And I, I just, I wanted, I really wanted to write about it. And I wanted to write about some of the themes in this book are themes that yes, make me personally very angry. And how, I'm like, how do you, how do you unpack that? How do you start to kind of pull it apart and see the feeling for what it is truly? Um, but yeah, no, all that anger's in there. <laughs> it's, it's fine to feel, it's fine to pick up on. And and this is your first novel, obviously. So was horror a choice or was horror an inevitable outlet for anger? Man, I feel like it's inev it, it was inevitable. <laughs> like even though this is my first novel, um, it's definitely not the first thing I've written. And like, especially my prose writings has always always drifted into darker territories, always drifted into horror, always had some sort of mystery element. Um, I've been a lifelong fan of horror. Uh, just, it was something that I was, I, somebody asked me to um, talk about recently that I found fascinating is, I as much as I am a horror fan, I like never actively identified as a horror fan for years because growing up I was told, oh, horror is a genre for white people. <laughs> and, oh that's interesting yeah yeah and as I got older I was kind of like no Aaron like you you belong here too <laughs> you belong here too and there's just as much for every everyone and something that I will say that I find the most refreshing and exciting about like the horror fandom as a whole is that we are some of the only 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 audience members and readers that are delighted by being uncomfortable and I, I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Can I ask, when you say you were told it was, you know, a genre for white yeah. people, do, do you mean sort of informed by the culture or do you mean literally told by people? I mean, I mean I, I'm trying to think like both. I remember there was just like a couple of moments of people being like, oh, you like that dark stuff. You like that like haunted stuff. Um, and also just like, yeah, a bit of the, I would say like that first very, um, superficial layer of, of quote unquote culture can feel very much like, oh, I don't belong here, but I don't know, especially as I just was like, no, I just, I really love this <laughs> and just kind of stuck around, um, and in the sticking around, I realized that that is just a facade and that horror of all genres has been one of the most welcoming. Well, that that is good to hear, and you know, and I, I try and do my tiny little bit, and I, I know that most of the community is celebrating that diversity, so, so that that's a good thing, right? So, anger we've established is a sort of governing theme that comes out very much through Liz, who is an interesting protagonist, right? Liz, I I have complex feelings about her. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. Yes, <laughs> they they come through as well. Um. I can't wait to try and find out kind of what you think about Liz, actually. She exerts an almost total vice-like grip over the novel. And, and not just because it's largely a first-person narrative, but because she seems very unyielding 
to other people's point of view. I don't know whether that resonates with, with you when you think about her, but she's quite brittle, I think. What was it like writing this book from her perspective? How did it feel? Because it, it's not a particularly relaxed place to be in Liz's <laughs> mind. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah, Liz. Oh, wow. What do I? Okay, so the first part, what do I, how do I feel about Liz? I, I very much wanted um, a deeply flawed protagonist and I wanted someone who some of her flaws are, you know, as you said, very glaring and in your face and other ones you would kind of uh, begin to reveal as the story goes on. Um, and I felt, I know that I felt very passionate that I just, I just didn't want, I wanted, you know, in some ways, the last person you would want in the driver's seat to be in the driver's seat of the story. Um, you know, it's like in order to, to get this done, she's going to have to face her childhood fear of the woods. She's going to face uh, these old relationships that she's had. Um, and I just wanted someone who was absolutely ill-equipped for all those things. <laughs> um, uh, just because I don't know. I mean, I feel like especially, especially with black women who are black women characters in horror, or just in really, I mean, quite frankly, all genres at this point, everyone's so put together and like strong and can like do stuff. And I'm like, what if she can't? What if, what if Liz is just kind of a hair away from being a complete mess? Um, and so I found that very, I just, I, that's, I really just, I wanted those things. And I found myself as I was writing being like, well, how can I make things worse for Liz? Um, like, how can it get worse? Yes. And so with the she's so, you know, stuck in the way that she sees the world sometimes and sometimes that, you know, blows up in her face towards the end. Mm. Uh, I part of it is the point of view being first person present. You're going to get that. It's really difficult to insert those other points of view because you're in the character in the present. But I wanted someone I wanted her to have opinions. I wanted her to just feel like a full person uh and in even if that person is you know sometimes makes decisions that you're like what are you doing with this <laughs> why are you doing that or listen to this person this person has information you're not listening to them uh it's something that uh they say that uh the writer's job your only job really is to tell the truth and so i just in no matter the circumstances no matter if they're supernatural stuff or not and so with Liz, I just, every time uh, things got, you know, a little sticky or complicated, I was like, oh, I wonder what to do here. I was like, what is the truth of this person that I've created, this, this character? And I always went from there. Um, but yeah, being in that headspace is a little exhausting. Um, she's, she's kind of always at the brink of something, either like running too fast or kind of falling apart. She's always like right at that edge. Yeah, she's like tense, ready to explode in any direction at all times. It, it, it's, yeah. I, I mean, the opening chapter, you, you do this thing that I'm, I'm assuming it's intentional, but it, it really works whether it is or not. But the, the first chapter is written in these really sharp staccato sentences that they do convey quite a bit about Liz, her, her emotional state when we, at the, at the point of meeting her that she's just kind of mm -hmm. listing all these things about the town and she's trying to exert control. And, and that's something we find that she does as a coping strategy is list things. But yeah, just grammatically, it feels like, oh, this is not a happy person. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm so happy. Oh, wow. Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that, that's all intentional. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, she's distancing, like it's something where she knows that this place, this town, home is not a very, you know, happy, warm, fuzzy place for her. So it is a, a distancing technique to mm-hmm. start listing things and to start categorizing and to start distancing yourself from everything, whether it is like, you know, the temperature in the train car or like a person she sees outside the station, she sort of like reduces people to, um, to, to words, to a bunch of like listed facts in her mind, so to speak that, but then as you know, as we go on, that starts to shift. And I'm very intentionally avoiding the question of likability when it comes to Liz, because that's an unfairly frequent question when it comes to female protagonists. One of the things mm-hmm. that's come out in this podcast over the hundred of ep- episodes now is is how often the double standard is in place with that question. Um, mm-hmm. I'll ask a slightly different question. In Liz's case, okay. do you feel that her almost constant suspicion and her anger and her attitude, do you feel they're justified? Hmm. I mean, I'm trying to think, because it is hard when you write from inside a character, because my first Mm. reaction is like, of course, but I'm like, Aaron, you also wrote from inside of her head for like months. Yeah, because events events justify what she thinks, but she doesn't know about that at the time she's thinking what she's thinking. Does that that make sense? So it's... Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, it's, it's difficult because I feel like as someone, like when you create these characters, like all of them, even your antagonists, you have to like everything in some ways feels justified to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think is, are, is, is, is her suspicion and her anger justified? I mean, when it comes to her hometown, I don't, yeah, something where it's like she's been burned pretty bad. <laughs> like she's been burned. It's that thing of you know, don't touch the stove, and she's touched the stove, and she's like, nah, not again. <laughs> um, so I think for those, I think the roots of them are all justified, but sometimes the kind of the reaction she has is not always. Some of it is, you know, it's that say that that saying they have like only a hit dog hollers. Um, like the thing, something she reacts to a bit too much mm-hmm. are um, indicative of who she is and some of those um, those internal wounds that she has. You know, you know the phrase, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Have you heard that before? Mm-hmm. I, yes, I've heard that before. Where Liz was concerned, I was kind of thinking, just because they're out to get you doesn't mean you're not paranoid. Oh, 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 excellent. You're picking up on something that I was really hoping was in the book. Um, it's that weird double-edged sword that, especially when I was going through editing, where I wanted every event that happens to Liz, in the beginning at least, to have this moment of, is this is this actual, like, threatening bodily harm, or is this just racism? And you just <laughs> never know. You never know. And so that's why, you know, she reacts to things sometimes the way she does, because it's like, is this, is, is what's going to happen actually going to cause me physical harm, or is this just another thing of racism? And as it goes on, it obviously it gets harder and harder to differentiate between those things, which I, I find, at least for me personally, like that is the for me, the horror of the book is that you just, it's, it's being constantly off guard where it's like, is that just like, 
a little comment or is this something that I need to like really focus on and just taking that questioning sensation and just extrapolating it as big as I could get it. When I'm talking about justification, things like that, that there's, there's an awkwardness there because who am I to ask about justification? But actually, that seems to be a major point of the novel, that white society expects black people in this town and presumably characters as well to conform to a good kind of blackness. It's the phrase that comes up again and again in Jackal, like good black people as opposed to bad. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you basically, if you could expand on that, because I found that a really interesting conceit, particularly how it relates to Johnstown, your, your setting. I mean, yeah. So I was like, part of me is like, how much time do you have? Um, Talk as long as you want. (laughs) Yeah. And you can feel free to cut out anything. Um, yeah, no, that is, that's also something that um, it's, it, it works well as a conceit because it is, at least for me, one of those like unspoken ways of life. Like there's always that phrase of like, oh, you're one of the good ones or it's like, oh, you're black, but you're not, you know, and you're like, you want to finish that sentence, please? <laughs> um, it, there's this idea of blackness that order to be quote unquote good, you have to fit this box and you have to behave a certain way and talk a certain way and dress a certain way and carry yourself a certain way. And I know at least for me, a lot of this book are is my like, you know, reflections and thinking back on that. And because I make I sing where it's like I had to like undo that in myself for a very long time where it's like, why do you think of this as good and this and something else is bad? Uh, and especially to loop it all the way back to how we started this conversation, like anger, it, there's, there's a real, a real container, a real like restriction around if you're allowed to be angry and in what capacity. Um, and uh, something that uh, came up for me in thinking about like, what is goodness is like specifically who does goodness serve? Like what does it, who does it really benefit for, for someone to be a quote unquote, one of the good ones? Uh, and how is that goodness just kind of like leeching away at your humanity? Because <laughs> uh, humans, you know, get angry, humans uh, get hurt and, there's this, uh, I feel like especially this, and this was happening, you know, before I wrote Jackal, this is happening, I'd say in the current political climate and has been, there's this whole thing of like, oh, you know, you can be upset, but like, don't protest, you know, or like, just make sure the protest is like really convenient. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, no, that's the point of protest is disrupting something <laughs> and saying the system is, the system is not working and I need people to listen. Uh, and there's this real, like, I don't, it's this real, um, like, I guess like, oh, maybe like a web is not the word, but it's like, it's a, it's a a container. It's like restricting, uh, folks. And so I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to examine what in the world is goodness and who does it benefit and how is that like dehumanizing in some ways? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause it feels like goodness, certainly in the way that, that certain characters in, in Jackal mean it basically means you know you're not rocking the boat and you are upholding the the status quo which by default is a white status quo that feels like what what is going on yeah 
I mean, on a broader sense, away from the book, I've always wondered whether the Obama phenomenon was an aspect of that, whether it in some way perpetuated that idea, at least, however unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, the like simplest way I can think of it is there's a whole another layer, which is like the model minority and like how you are allowed to attain certain settings by kind of positioning yourself closer to quote-unquote whiteness and what in the world does that cost you but what are you gaining Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um it's just really complicated and and as you can tell as I'm like trying to figure out the best way to like pose the answer to the question it's very much entrenched in some of I would argue some of the most American things which are like race and class uh, and you, it's just really, it's really difficult, uh, which is a part of me is like, which is why I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> uh, I wrote a book to tackle some of this question. By no means do I get all of it. That's like, I don't know. I don't know how many books I'll be books forever and ever. Um, but some of it, I just really wanted to, to pull it apart to see like, you know, something where like thinking back whenever in my lifetime, I would either, someone would refer to me as like, oh no, you're you're one of the good ones or you're black, but you're not, uh. I would always feel this like anger mm-hmm. in me, but someone's giving you a quote unquote compliment, but I'm upset, <laughs> but I'm very upset by this compliment. Uh, and just going from that like very like basic understanding of there is something else here. And then of course, with time and education and growing up and maturing, beginning to pull it apart for what it is, uh, which is another form of racism. And also, sorry, to lead it all back to um, something that is happening with Liz and why she's sometimes so tense is it creates this cycle of self-policing where you have people like, quote unquote, doing the work themselves to keep themselves in check. And that is another way of dehumanizing somebody. It's quite exhausting because I mean, you and I are trying to talk our way through this, you know, in, in the yeah. best we can. And, and we've got the format afforded to us of a podcast and, and we can't really get to the nub of it. So it, it makes me, yeah. it makes you realise why these problems just persist because, you know, who's taking the time to really sit down and talk these things through? You You, you can just see why it's so easy to just take the knee-jerk headline approach to all these questions. Yes, I agree with all of that. I would also add that I think that there is a way forward. It's just with everyone getting a little uncomfortable. Um, And um, it's opening up the wound, so to speak, and like taking a nice long look at it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like just taking a nice deep dive and seeing what's in there. Because the more that people try to, you know, as you say, take the knee-jerk reaction or take the the quote-unquote easy way out, the less that we actually get to go in there and kind of see what's going on. I mean, this is why story is so useful for these kind of things, because it allows you to filter it all into another place that where the, the stakes aren't quite as high, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Let's bring it back to Jackal. All the things we just talked about, you kind of embody in the topography of this town, because society in, in contemporary Johnstown 
is still segregated between black and white. You've got this valley where the poorest inhabitants live on the valley floor. And as as the, the, the hillsides go further up, things get more elevated. And then you've got the, you know, in quotation marks, good blacks who live in, in a liminal state, n- not amongst the other black people on the valley floor, but also not really at one with the white people on the slope. So it's, you know, th- th- this town really is representative of, of everything you've discussed. How much does the Johnstown of your novel resemble the Johnstown of your childhood? Is it just the same place? Um, no, actually. I have been, uh, you know, obviously my, my family still lives there and going back and visiting over the years, it is definitely getting better. Uh, there's been definitely like more of an effort to, I think, first off, just the economy in the town is get, is just getting stronger. So like more money is coming in, different industries are investing. Uh, so that's like a major help. Uh, and I also think that Johnstown more than ever, because believe me, when you have a book like this and you're having to walk into your <laughs> local town bookstore and say, hello, I wrote this book, um, is a little terrifying. Um, but I found that especially now more than ever, people in Johnstown are so much more willing and ready to talk about these issues uh, to talk about some of the history that's brought up uh, in the book. And that was like a very nice welcome surprise. So I feel like some of the, these aspects are definitely on a better track. Uh, when it comes to, you know, the actual economic makeup of the town, I mean, visually, uh, things still seem pretty segregated. Uh, but I know, like, I know that things are changing just by, you know, the basic, um, like, housing economy and things changing that way. But it's still, you know, it's kind of, it's like the book is taking like my specific childhood experience and of course turning the, like the, the knob all the way to 11. Mm-hmm. It's something like, for example, even in the introduction, like if you're from town, you know about the incline plane and about the sign for the incline plane, which I always found very funny. It's a very big sign that just says, welcome to Johnstown, home of the world's deepest vehicular incline plane. Yes, all of that, all of that is on a sign. Um, But it is not as exaggerated as produced in the book. You can't see it from a mile away. It's not at the top of town. It's like, it's, you know, in a respectable part of where you can see the incline plane. So it's things like that, where it's like, we're taking what is kind of what's there, what's kind of what's something I picked up on when I was younger and turning the volume all the way up. When it comes to the reality, I think that the reality of Johnstown is like a lot of Rust Belt towns in America that went through a very hard time. And now they are, uh, thankfully, seems to be on the upswing. Something so endearing about American small towns pride in their unique landmarks yes <laughs> it's just so lovely i just you know like world's biggest ball of twine and all that stuff i absolutely just love it like i'd, I'd love yeah. to do like a coffee table book of going around taking photos of them <laughs> in, in terms of the historical reality of of johnstown um there are two well there, there are many but there are two historical details in the book a flood <laughs> and yes. for want of a better word an expulsion <laughs> um both of which you expand upon in your afterword and they're such fascinating stories i wonder if you'd be willing to talk about them just a little here just because i want to yeah. know about them i think they're my listeners will too they're really interesting little details 
Yeah. Okay. So the it was the Johnstown flood. For a while, it was the largest natural disaster in American history. Um, in May of 1889, middle of the day, which I always find even more terrifying, after a week of heavy rains, this the South Fork Dam burst, and it's about 14 miles above Johnstown, and so the entire dam just emptied and carried debris from 14 miles down the mountain and hit the town middle of the day and just completely decimated parts of it. And because of the time, um, it knocked out communications. So it took like a whole day for anyone outside of town to know what had even happened. Like people had to travel on foot to other towns to get like, you know, the call for help out and then help really, you know, rushed in uh, pretty drastically. It was the largest peacetime effort of the American Red Cross. It helped found the peacetime American Red Cross. Uh, and it was just this huge disaster in the town's history. And when people start to dig around to like, you know, why did the dam fail? What's like, what happened? It's so strange because in doing research for the book, I had to like figure out, oh, when exactly did they figure out what happened? It took until I want to say like 2013, but I knew this growing up that um, uh, the dam fell into different ownership, into disrepair. And the last owners uh, were the hunting and sports club where the, you know, the 1% of Pittsburgh came to vacation uh, to hunt and to fish. And the, the, the um, adjustments they made to the dam were not for the integrity of the dam. It was to make it a better vacation home. And so that led intrinsically to the dam failing uh, in 1889. And so it was yet another, it was an example of like the extreme, the the needs of the extremely affluent wealthy just desecrating the, the working class and the poor because the town, the, the city of Johnstown is like, it's a steel mill town. Like it's like you, you know, people had jobs at the mill forever, but it's like, you really like you, you are what you make yourself. You can build yourself up in a town like mm-hmm. that, uh, real like working class, like, yeah. So that was in the rebuild effort, really what came to identify the town. And then uh, a little bit later, um, in the 1920s, there was uh, the, the, the Great Banishment, where there were a lot of uh, single Black men, single Black and brown men in town to work at the Coke factory, at the steel mill, and I'm blanking on the third industry. But there are like a lot of industries And there was so therefore a need for a lot of workers. And so a lot of uh, African-Americans like might when in the Great Migration would stop in Johnstown because like, hey, there's a job here. And and because workers, it's lots of single men. And so there was like, of course, it's summer, it's hot. There was a fight in the fight. uh, White police officers were killed. A black man was killed. Just like the the seeds of at that point in time, the country like was prone to a lot of like race riots. You know, there's the St. Louis riots, there's uh, Tulsa, there's just Mm -hmm. like, it was happening. There's massive upheaval happening. And so out of, I would argue like really fear, a lot of fear, uh, the mayor basically said, it's like, get out. (laughs) Like all of you need to get, you need to leave. You have until the end of the week to leave. And there are claims of uh, crosses burning in the hills of Johnstown. And then about 2,000 black and brown people left the city, uh, probably most likely never to come back. And I wanted to 
A, it was something where I'm like, oh my goodness, I found this out at my big old age of being in my 30s <laughs> after living there for years. Had no idea this happened. Uh, and it was also around the time of the popular, the resurgence of um, Lovecraft Country. And we're talking about sundown towns. And like mm -hmm. sundown towns were something that happened in the north of America, not in the yeah. south. Uh, and it was a moment of it's like, oh, your your hometown was kind of a sundown town. <laughs> like you have to. Uh, it's like, woo, I only laugh because it's like, you know, a little terrifying and you have to like grapple with that. Um, and I think that especially in the northern United States, it's really difficult for people to talk about race in these terms and talk about like think like, you know, why why do some towns look the way they do and others don't? And mm. as I said before, I think we have to, in, in many cases, like pull open these wounds of history and just take a real good look at them and be like, yeah, this seems like, you know, yes, we had one, one very outlandish mayor make this decree, but then it's like, but look at the effects, like look mm. at all the fallout from this. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for talking in such detail about it all because it, it just really struck me because even though those two events are both mentioned in the novel, they, they don't really play a major part in, in the plot details as such, but it, but it still felt like they were essential to the texture of this town and kind of to the impetus behind your story. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, abs absolutely. I was... Um again, chatting with folks about, it's like, you know, why do you have these events in a, especially in like a mm. horror mystery thriller? It's like, why is this here? And I think it's exactly what you said. They, they, they all are, it's like mixing around in the air of this place. It's mm. all like in the setting. It's something where whenever you set something somewhere, you always would think of, you know, why here, why now? And it's like, all of that, they're all like in the mix of why I, you know, wanted to set something in this, in, in my hometown. Um, mm. Because it's all, it's all there. It's especially, it's like with that feeling of when you unearth something in your history and you're like, oh, now all these things make sense. <laughs> um, it's, it's that feeling. And it's like, it has to be in there because it's just, I don't know, it's, I can't think of it like, oh, it's just like another like shade and all the colors. Like it's, it's part of, it's part of the history. It's part of the mapping. It's part of the setting. I mean, it, it, what it, what it did for me was it, it made the book feel both hyper local in terms of these were events that happened in this town where this story is set for real, but it also made it feel a sort of Pan American story in a way, because like you say, those two <laughs> details, one, you know, the exploitation of the rich leads to the actual death of the poor. I mean, that is not just a, a great American narrative that, you know, come to Britain, we do that just as well too. Um, yeah, no, and, I believe it. <laughs> and, and as you say, like the race riots and, and, the, and the, the fear and that the paranoia was happening all over the country as well. So it, it both like hyper-localized it and expanded it to become an American story. And I, as someone who just loves American horror, that I appreciated that a lot. But it, it did make me think about another sentence in contrast. So there's a, a really lovely sentence in Jack, and I highlighted it the minute that I read it because I thought, well, I need to mention this. Because amidst all of this 
history of violence and, and, and trauma and all of these things. I mean, let's not forget, we haven't really touched on it. This is, this is a book about little girls being taken mm-hmm. on, the, on the regular um so this is a horror novel it's not an historical fiction yeah exactly (laughs) but there's there's this line black folks are masters of joy trauma isn't the only thing carried in our dna and i thought that was lovely (laughs) it's a a moment of sort of lightness and hope amongst the darkness um but then it, it got me thinking because i know there's been a lot of discourse about the centrality and and the possible exploitation of trauma in mm-hmm. in in black stories and particularly horror and it's something i try and remain sensitive to when i'm interviewing guests but in a book like yours that's so focused on a specifically racialized horror scenario how do you feel about that whole issue having written this book oh yeah <laughs> i have i have so many feelings um oh it's like, how do I, how do I even begin to parse out this, this question? Because I definitely have had my thoughts about it. I'm like, okay, what are you going to say when someone asks you about trauma? Um, I think that sometimes the only way to expose a system that's broken or something that's broken is to see, you know, the pieces of it kind of on the floor. And I completely respect anyone who says, hey, listen, trauma is not for me. I, I hear them and I, I, I understand where that's coming from because for so long, that was the only thing that black folks were allowed to, to speak on was trauma, it was like racial trauma. So it, was all, it was all that, all day, every day. And so I understand people who are just like, nope, <laughs> I get it. Um, and for me, whenever whatever makes my like little internal like ick sensor red flag sensor go off is when trauma is there just for the sake of of shock and then we never kind of look at it again (laughs) like it's like no it's like it's but it's something where I think at least for me I see trauma as it's intrinsic to humanity and Mm -hmm. if you treat trauma with all the same same guidelines that you would treat any other aspect of telling a story, then I think you're on a better track to be able to talk about it. And it's something where, you know, I'm trying to like, when there are moments of violence or speak or speaking around moments of violence to acknowledge the humanity that is either being lost or the, or like mourning the humanity that is no longer there. Um, I feel like, I mean, I hope that I do that with the the girls' chapters. Um, they were all crafted extremely carefully uh, between myself and my editor uh, to make sure that we were focusing on the the children that were lost mm-hmm. over whatever is doing this, and that all of those chapters, the story of the chapter, or occasionally the horror of the chapter, is more about these girlhood experiences and less about, you know, what happened to them. Part of me is I'm like, we know what happened to them. We know, like as an audience, we've seen the pattern. We know what's going to happen. Uh, for me, the more interesting thing was the, the missing, the, the humanity that is so often removed from victims uh, of trauma. And so when it comes down to it, I, I feel like especially these quote unquote darker genres like horror and, and thriller and mystery, you you kind of you have to use trauma. Like that's part of like part of me is like that's 
a major part of the genre. Uh, but I think the key to using it without re-traumatizing folks or without doing so in a, in a detrimental way is to always proceed with humanity first and proceed with like the heart and the, and the life that you are pulling apart and to never do so without an extremely good reason or justification. Um, that is my very convoluted answer to that question. Well, I'll tell you what, Ryan Murphy could really do with you trying to bat away the criticism of Dharma because I feel like you did a far better job of explaining that than, than the press around that TV show has done. All right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, right, let's move on to slightly lighter fare. Slightly lighter. You can only get so light with this book. But when you aren't writing novels, you're a playwright. And actually, I was quite rude at the start. You mentioned that you're just um, in New York beginning a, a play. Did you? I, I was so convinced, concerned with getting my intro done. What, what are you doing right now? <laughs> yeah, so right now I am in Tech Week. Uh, we start previews this weekend for my um, off-Broadway debut as a playwright, which is very exciting, if not extremely stressful. <laughs> Many congratulations. Um, What's the play called? You. It's called Inkwell. Um, it's set in Martha's Vineyard, uh -huh. and it's about... Um, it's about a young black woman who, after her brother has passed away under mysterious circumstances, she has to return to their childhood summer home in Martha's Vineyard to find out what happened. I'm all about people going to places they once called home and unearthing some stuff. Um, this was my next question, because I was going to say, I read about Inkwell and I read about Snow Globe, your, your other play, oh, yeah. and, and, and both seem to feature a young woman returning home after years away, just like Jackal. <laughs> so my question was going to be, regardless of medium, what is it about homecoming that's so central to your storytelling? Oh, I think it's because for me growing up, um, I had so many different homes. There was a point in time where I moved every three years of my life. Um, and that was from my mother changing careers, my place. And so I just moved a lot. And so just the idea of home already became complicated to me as a child. And then now as an adult looking back, I'm like, oh, no, you have a home. It's just there's a lot of them. <laughs> like, I have a lot of them. It's like home is Johnstown. Home is also um, the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Um, home is also just, I feel like for me, anywhere where my mother is. Um, so it's like I had a very fractured um, experience of it. And so I find it, you know, fascinating to revisit these places as an adult uh and everything that comes up because of that uh so how old were you when you lived in johnstown um i moved there oh god uh but i want to say around like fourth or fifth grade and then i was there all the way through uh the, my last year of high school okay so a, a lot of your childhood then yeah um, yeah right because right um i've i've done the typical thing i always do which i've I've kind of tiptoed around a lot of questions about lived experience in that painfully, awkwardly white way that, you know, we do in these situations. <laughs> but the one thing where I really feel like we have some shared experience, if, <laughs> if this book is any indication, 
is in our respective adolescences in, in small towns. And, mm-hmm. and Jackal spoke to me on a really personal level. Um, it's why I, the, the setting is the part of the book I just love the most. So mm-hmm. to explain, I, I come from a tiny town in the north of England, and it's actually also in a deep, dark valley, just like Johnstown. <laughs> wow. Um, although qu- quarrying was always the, uh, the industry there. Um, <laughs> but I grew up thinking of it as a trap, you know, full of small-minded people, because it was. Um, <laughs> and I used to return home at holidays with a, a real sense of contempt, which I'm quite ashamed of now. And I, <laughs> I moved back to the area when I met my wife and I now live about 10 miles from the town I was born in and I've got a much more nuanced view of it now I could never move back to the city for example I just couldn't I I love being out in the sticks you know um and there's a whole tension in Jackal between well between Liz and the town but particularly between Liz and her friend Mel whose daughter is is the lost girl Mm. um and and I found myself agreeing with Mel when she says quote not all of us want to live packed on top of one another paying thousands of dollars to sleep in a closet doing jobs we hate with people we hate where our neighbors don't care if we live or die (laughs) (laughs) so i feel like i've been in both positions i've been liz looking at my hometown with sort of despair and contempt and i've been mel who's like i I love this place for its humanity and i suppose how do you feel because i I get the sense you're quite conflicted Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, it was it was very strange hearing you describe your experience because I feel like I'm like I don't know maybe a couple years behind you. <laughs> like I, um, like yeah, I definitely. I feel like when I first you know left town and came back, I was like, oh, I'm so great, blah blah blah. And then like you know, life has a way of humbling you. <laughs> and then I came back, and every time I returned, there's something that's very rich and really beautiful about this place. Um, And it kind of began a little bit of my like disillusionment with with city living. And I don't know, I'm currently, you know, in between places, but mostly in New York for now. And I have been lately re-meeting New York and kind of thinking of, I'm like, okay, so why here? Like, why do you have to live here I'm becoming very much more intentional about how I approach the city um, especially through the various levels of pandemics and lockdowns Uh, because yeah no I definitely I can feel myself like craving some some wide open space um, some nature Uh, and so but yeah no I am I'm very I mean part of me is like that's why both of the points of view are really strongly in the book I Mm -hmm. there are some days where I'm like no city living forever I'd rather die than admit the rent's too high or um I I feel very much like Mel where I'm just like why are you there it's making you really hard and and miserable (laughs) you like um I'm allowing myself to space to feel both of those feelings at the same time i love the city mm-hmm. i also can't stand it i i i love my hometown i also think that it has some work it's got to do <laughs> yeah new york just sounds like a impossibly difficult prospect to me i think maybe my <laughs> my, my self-esteem and my energy levels are just too low i think but it just feels like i, I imagine every day you get up and just go to war that's how i kind of <laughs> feel it must be. You know, but yeah. Sometimes, we um, don't, only sometimes, not every day. Some days we get to have some lazy days. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, hold on to them. Um, 
silly question, perhaps, but I, I've kind of shied away from really talking about the big bad and the monster in the mix of all this, because it's a particularly difficult book to even dip a toe into that without getting to spoiler territory. And the mystery is so essential. So I've shied away more than usual. I will ask one question mm -hmm. um, because the book makes it quite clear from the start. There is this legend of um, a man and his shadow in the woods. It's a really creepy rhyme and I love a creepy rhyme. <laughs> and we won't say what that turns out to be, but is it based on any particular local folklore that was kind of real in your childhood? So, no, that one is entirely, that, that bit in the rhyme is entirely um, me. Um, but the, the mood of it, so to speak, is very Pennsylvania, so to say. Like, there's, um, I'd say a lot of the folklore, um, what, I forget what I saw and someone's like, oh, a lot of the folklore in this part of the country is just like, leave that stuff alone. Uh, and like I feel like growing up you would hear it was like I remember there was always that thing it's like if you hear someone call your name at night or if you hear whistling um, if you hear anything that you that you're out and about and you think you shouldn't the way to get around it is to ignore it <laughs> is to leave it alone do not engage do not respond just keep going where you're going and so I wanted something that would be um, very much in that category but not really landing on one thing or another were the pennsylvania woods a scary place to be in certain times of year absolutely <laughs> and, and like basically when when the leaves are not on the trees they're very scary um when the when the leaves are on the trees and they're green it's very beautiful uh it's very beautiful and um remote i think that is like the, the fear of those woods kind of sneaks up on you because you'll be out, like I'll be out, you know, driving in between towns and stuff. And every so often I'll just be like, there is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing yeah. here for miles. It's stunning. It's beautiful. Like, you know, all the nature dopamine is happening. But um, behind that, <laughs> there's this idea of there is nobody around here for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, because I, I go running every day um, in the woods and the hills. And I, I have this thing where I often see shadows from the edge of my vision. Oh, um, yeah. And because of your book, that's newly terrifying now. Because <laughs> no. there's this brilliant, there's this brilliant like sort of myth that's this, this kind of kernel of the folklore that is if if you see something, just don't look at it. Because by looking at it, you give it power. And that to me seems like that something only becomes actually real if you look at it. Yep. There's something really frightening about that to me because <laughs> let's face it, in reality, you'd, you'd look at it. You know, you mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to like not look at the monster. Yeah. It's like saying don't, it's like if I said, you know, don't think of an elephant, you know, you can't. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's a very cool idea. And I, I'm delighted to hear that at least some of it is, is dredged from your own youthful folklore. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. No, working with all of that, I, yeah, I was trying to piece together something that felt something would, that would feel authentic, um, yeah. but also wouldn't like land on anything too hard. And um, but yeah, no, I absolutely the the whole shadow and the corner of her eye thing. It gets me too. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. and I'm like, but you wrote that. You don't get to be afraid of it. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> I absolutely yeah. do. Well, that's that's as much as I can safely say about the uh, the darkness in the woods. I think listeners will have to, on this occasion, buy the book to find out more because I just can't trust myself to, to thread that needle. Uh, mm -hmm. But speaking of buying books, mm -hmm. we always finish by asking guests to recommend a book 
for the listeners and tell us why. Do you have one that comes to mind? Yes, I do. Um, this is something that I did the um, Roots, Wounds, Words uh, writing um, fellowship earlier this summer. And my uh, professor there, Nisi Shaw, they recommended this book uh, to me and I got to read it recently. And I was like, oh, this is, this is delightful. <laughs> um, it's called How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend uh, by, <laughs> by, by, by Linda Addison. It's a collection of prose and verse. So there's like some short stories, some microfiction, some poetry. And it was just delightful. <laughs> um, it's, you know, based in horror, supernatural, and like sci-fi thrown in there too. And it was something where, especially because I'm I'm writing a lot quite right, right now, and I like having short, um, dense things to read. And this definitely okay. satisfies that. Like some of the poetry, you just kind of read it and you just kind of like just want to sit there and like let it wash over you for a bit. <laughs> it's nice. And, and and does it feature friendly demons or is that a, a misnomer? Uh yeah, it's a misnomer. <laughs> like I don't okay. I don't I don't I don't think you want these demons. <laughs> Right. Okay. Right. That sounds worrying. Demon <laughs> stuff freaks me out. So I, I'll let oh. other people try that one perhaps, but yeah, <laughs> listeners, let me know. Yeah. That, that, so that's what scares me. Um, yeah. The whole demon thing. What truly scares you, Erin? Um, okay. This is a little ridiculous, but this is absolutely true. Uh, I'm afraid of birds. I don't like birds. Um, and not for any sort of like massive childhood thing. It's that my mother is afraid of birds <laughs> and she would always like pull me. I have many memories of her pulling me in front of her um, because of a stray pigeon. And so now I have inherited this fear of birds. Like I was walking my dog this morning and there were a bunch of pigeons and I was just like, nope, we're crossing the street. <laughs> I'm not doing that today. Uh, but yeah, something... I think I, I, I know what it is. Like it's that seeing my mom afraid made me feel so afraid yeah. as a kid. And so now that's why birds to me um, mean, mean fear. So yes, I am actually, I do not like birds and no, I have not watched the birds. I don't plan on it. I can't. <laughs> I mean, that's enough. My, my mother is fr frightened of birds as well. And um, I, we want, I, we went to Venice once to St. Mark's square mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there are, like 10 pigeons to every single person. Oh, and, God. And you, you can buy like little sort of pots of corn to feed the birds and you can literally cover it and you can be covered in birds. And mm -hmm. my, my mother was very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think I think she would have happily thrown me at the pigeons <laughs> herself. So, yes. so yeah. Uh, yeah, well, birds may be frightening to you, but they are at least a slightly more lighthearted way to end what's been quite an intense conversation. Uh, Jackal is out today and as I said right at the start if you're into that that weird twisty thriller mystery horror small town thing I think there's a lot in here that that people will like so yeah check it out and as ever let me know what you think of it but Erin thank you so much for talking scared yeah thank you for having me I had a great time Okay, so prepare yourselves for a slightly over-serious outro. Um, here goes. I've heard few dumber statements over the years than horror is a genre for white people. 
thankfully, I doubt anyone listening to this show has anything but contempt for such a sentiment, because surely 114 episodes of smugly aggressive wokery has banished that particular strain of idiocy to someone else's podcast. Jordan Peterson's probably doing one you can go listen to. I mean, let's face it, American Gothic is built on the nightmarish architecture of racism. So to suggest that people of colour should then not even participate in the genre, well, that seems like the ultimate generational slap in the face. Thank God for black horror, and Latin horror, and Southeast Asian horror, and Native American horror, each of which has been the basis for some of the finest episodes of this podcast, I think. But, and it is a big but, I still feel uncomfortable with how an interview about those books invariably focuses on the horror and the trauma of being othered. I'm still working on how to ask questions of a minority author when I wouldn't ask those same questions of a white author. It seems exploitative sometimes, yet to neglect those issues often means neglecting the primary elements of the story. So it's a mental wrestle, but I am delighted that Erin had such a fulsome and thoughtful answer to the question of trauma. It was great because you could hear her actually thinking her answer through in the moment. It wasn't some pre-assembled rote answer she'd given time and time again. And I do generally agree with her stance. This is horror. Horror is largely indivisible from some kind of trauma, but it requires respect and most of all heart to be valid. That's kind of my feelings on the genre in a nutshell. And maybe that's why I enjoyed Jackal so much, because, well, first of all, there is the mystery thriller element of the plot, which injects a nice sense of propulsion. Think Gillian Flynn-style plotting, or Ronald Malfi, all those 90s detective thrillers we spoke about. The question of who or what is taking these girls is really gripping, and it's almost impossible to work out what's going on. And I dare you to tell me you had all this tied up in your head before the ending. I'll be honest, I found that ending was maybe a little too abstract for my taste, a little too unworkoutable. But, but, there is also that heart and weight that Erin spoke about, and it's most notable in the interstitial chapters between the main sections of the book, when Erin gives us these short insights into the lives of the lost girls. Those are the real highlights of the book, and it's where the writing really soars. So, Jackal's not a perfect book, but it's a very enjoyable read, and I'll be absolutely sure to pick up whatever Erin writes next. As for what's next for me, well, we've got a few episodes to go before the break, I promise myself, and as it turns out, I'm managing to both take a break and yet not miss a single week's episode. Basically, I'm giving myself some time off not to read for every show, but there will still be shows and they will still be about books. You'll see. That's not for a while, though, because we're still on the usual footing for the next several weeks, and of course, we don't need to wait week to week to speak. You can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, where I'm normally talking nonsense. That's at talkscaredpod. Tell me your thoughts on horror, or on this week's show in particular, or just why you love Talking Scared. That's always nice to hear. (laughs) And if you do love Talking Scared, you can become a Patreon and get loads more content, including a brand new deep dive into the history of werewolves. 
just sign up for a few dollars or the currency of your choice at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Huge thanks to recent sign-ups, Kenneth Yu, Zach Lowe, Paul Worthington and Neem B. You guys shall be spared the blood sacrifice this weekend. That's all for this week's show. I'm, I'm back next time with Andy Davidson and his Southern Gothic masterpiece, and I use that word intentionally, the hollow kind. You'll hear my thoughts on that book at length next week, and trust me, they are strong thoughts. Until then, call home. Write a letter to someone who loves you, and temper anger with forgiveness if you can. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.